I don't know if you remember how to talk there. Uh, Steve, can you hear me with this mic? <laughs> I just washed my hair. I shouldn't have washed my hair. Hi, everybody. Okay, there we are. This is Steve Hargadon. It's Wednesday, September 30th, 2009, and welcome to the Future of Education. We have three great guests tonight, Howard Rheingold, Joyce Valenza, and Francie Harris. And I'm going to do a brief introduction of Illuminate in this environment so you have a sense of um, how to work if you haven't been here. Now, I'm not seeing anything on my whiteboard screen. Are you seeing a second screen there? Uh, yes, I'm, yes, I'm seeing your slides change. Okay, so for some, some reason, I'm not seeing the slide change. So are we, now, are we now seeing the slides with the Illuminate uh, layout? Now it's got Learn, Learn Central. A second ago, it was a picture of the three of us. Okay, so thanks for coaching me, Howard. So this is uh, uh, Future Education is sponsored by Learn Central and uh, by Illuminate. Learn Central is a social network for educators that's uh, free and it has Illuminate baked in. I encourage you to go there and that. It's my project of passion. So it's a lot of find some value there. Now we should be seeing the Illuminate uh, layout screen. And if you are, because I'm not seeing anything, I wanted to give you sort of a short overview of how to use Illuminate if this is your first time. You'll see a, um, a participant window that shows all the participants who are in the session. And you are able in the chat area below that to send messages to the group as a whole. You can also send messages to other individuals, but do be aware that when you send a message to another individual, the moderators do see that, so it's not entirely private. There are little uh, icons at the bottom of the participant window that let you participate. Uh, you can uh, give a smiley face, clap, that's the little hand with coming out of it. There's a confused look or a thumbs down. If you want to ask a question, and this is going to be a pretty free-form evening, Please feel free to raise your hand, and you do that by clicking on the hand with the green arrow up, and that lets us know you want to talk. We'll give you the microphone. If you do think you want to do that, it makes a lot of sense to go audio and run the audio setup wizard to make sure your mic is working well. Um, now I'm going to let you use the whiteboard, and I'm going to click to the next slide and just let me know if, in fact, that looks like it's the orientation slide. There we go, the world map. So I'm going to give you permissions to modify the world map. And if you click on the wand, which is the little stick with the red dot at the end, let us know where you're listening from. Often fun also in the chat to point out, um, to tell us where you're listening from and maybe what the time and temperature are. I love all those people from Australia. So I'm getting some kind of a lag because your video is all stopped for me and I'm not. So I think there's uh, some kind of connection problem on my end. I'm going to actually switch to my Verizon broadband connection and I'll be. But Howard, uh, I did a little editorializing when I made up the name of this session because you had called it a librarians and crap detection. And I had been a little nervous about using that word in all of my publicity. So I turned it into librarians and truth detection. Now, I'm reading Neil Postman last night, one of my new uh, found love authors, and I 
read a chapter called Crap Detecting, and I thought, oh, I've done a, a misjustice here. I haven't, this hasn't been fair of me. So Howard, would you describe what your idea was for tonight, and then I'll let you introduce yourself, and then uh, Joyce, if you and Francie would also introduce yourselves, we'll jump right into conversation. Well, I, I picked up and I legitimized the term crop detection because it's a quote from Ernest Hemingway. So unless you want to remove Ernest Hemingway from the libraries, it's, it's just a classical quotation. Um, so let's see, shall I set myself up to be on video here? Anything, I, anything else I need to do? No, you're great and we can hear you. And if you would like to see Howard or Joyce or Francie large, just click on the picture of the person down below and they become the larger picture for you. Ah, okay, so um, the last time, I, I was very uh, attracted to these sessions because we had such a, a great conversation last time and you were a great interviewer, Steve. So I'm, I'm, I'm very relaxed about this and I'm in a sense have in, in one way, I'm, I'd like to pay people back uh, for talking uh, for nearly an, an hour last time and do a lot more listening this time. And in another sense, I'm, I'm just being straightforward about this. I'm, I'm here to learn. I've, as I have explained elsewhere, and I've got a couple of screens that I can show you of, uh, of websites about that that probably most of your audience have already seen my article on crap detection in the little video, um, I've, I've been very interested in, in these uh, literacies that are, are becoming, have become essential and of course this is nothing new to librarians. So I'm, I'm coming here to learn from you folks and maybe my contribution is to frame this in terms of something that you wouldn't be librarians if you didn't believe for a long time that th this kind of skill set and community are, are essential. And that's, when I use the word literacy, I'm, I'm talking both about the skill set that an individual needs, kind of the interior pointing side of this two-way flow, and the, and the community to which that, that literacy admits the individual. And I think also, particularly when we're talking about the, the internet, the, the quality of the commons, the degree of, of knowledge that individuals have about crap detection, among other things, foremost among other things, is I think a critical uncertainty about whether we're going to drown in noise. Um, I didn't have any problem with editing out crap. I'm a little bit nervous about truth because we can argue about that philosophically, I think, for example, accuracy or credibility are important words, and I'm particularly thinking about what young people need to know. So I got started thinking about this myself when my, my daughter, who's now 25, was in middle school, I guess she was 12 or 13, and started writing papers using AltaVista when the first search engines became available and I sat down with her and talked to her about what you need to do to not get um, in trouble with what you're finding online versus what you're finding in a, in a library with the help of a librarian. You're, you're on your own out there and that experience that I went through with my, my daughter has remained somewhat dormant until recently when I've 
I've been thinking a lot that what I've been engaged in, enthusiastic about and observing and, and, and creating communications about for 20, 30 years now, the, the personal computer is a, an amplifier of individual thought, the, the use of online media for many-to-many -many communications for community formation, and now the untethering of computation and communication with, with uh, mobile devices, that the, the question arises, are these things any good for us as individuals, for our cognition, uh, for our relationships, and for our communities and society? And I have come to believe that the answers is that depends on what people know and how, how much, how many people know it. And we've, we've seen, of course, the addition of a great deal of noise, to use a more maybe polite term than crap, in the, in the commons of the internet. And there's nothing we can do about that. And I'm, I'm a bit of a, a free speech libertarian. I think that there's nothing that we, we should do about that. What, what we can do and what we ought to do is to help people determine on their own um, where they should deploy their attention, what's worth spending their attention on, and, and what's credible and accurate, and, and what kind of information should you spread around. So I'm, that's why I proposed that to be the subject of this discussion tonight, hoping that, um, that I can learn from, from Joyce and Francie and the others out there, and, um, and, and frankly, will use this in my way, which is as a, I guess, popular communicator to try to, to spread the idea that, again, is not new to librarians, that we should pay attention to what librarians are doing. We should pay attention to what's been called information literacy, and that we need to teach our kids to oversimplify before anyone gets online, whether they're a kid or not. A, how do you find out anything you need to know by asking the right question? And B, how do you know that what you found is accurate or, or credible or worth spreading around? So that's that's what brings me here, and I, I hope to contribute to a lively conversation. But from this point, uh, we'll be doing probably a lot more listening than talking. Joyce, do you want to take it from there? Uh, sure. I'm excited about uh, this conversation because it's what I live every day. and. And, and it's been changing pretty much um, every year for me, and I've really been evolving. And Steve, I'm glad you brought up the notion of truth because my notion of truth continues to evolve. And I, I, it, it was a lot more black and white in the old days than it, than it is right now for me. So I used to be able to teach about evaluation of material in a much more black and white way. Um, and I, 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 I was guilty of, I, I'm embarrassed about the way I, I taught this stuff at this point because I used to look at good sites and bad sites on the internet and and I, I really uh, started thinking a couple of years ago that nothing is inherently good or inherently bad. It's about what we need to do with the stuff and the context for the information. So I'll, I, you know, I'll, I used to talk about um, uh, you know, uh, it's still very essential to know who the author is and why why a, a particular document was written. That's pretty much an essential question in terms of interviewing any document you should come across. And and sometimes what I do is I model 
couple of students. I'll, I'll, I'll pull a result list up and we'll look at the result list together and we can't afford to visit every site that comes up on a result list. So we need to make some snap judgments as we look at URLs and we look at the context clues in a result list. Um, and that's become a very valuable um, discussion point, and especially when the classroom teacher is involved, because you get the classroom teacher's values and, and what the classroom teacher is looking for in terms of a particular assignment or information task. Another issue that seems to be clouding everything right now is my students are printing incessantly. And what happens when everything's printed is everything is on 8.5 by 11 paper. And where we used to be able to tell what a journal was, what a magazine was, what a book was, it all looks the same. And now my students, um, I have to go back and, and kind of almost um, deconstruct what, what was on that page to think about what it was originally. Uh, and, and that's been a kind of interesting journey. We've had to, um, I, I realize that there are holes in every bucket right now. And, and a lot of that has to do um, with what we've been talking about as, as the commons. And one example that I find fascinating is, um, the Library of Congress. It's putting its um, its photo stream up on Flickr right now. And I think that's a really exciting lesson to teach. Um, it's possible that when the Library of Congress puts a particular photo of coal miners up on the web, that people in Pennsylvania might fill in the blanks and put notes on that Flickr image and, and really enhance our understanding of that image beyond what um, historians in Washington have been able to do. What's really happening is um, a real exercise in craft detection because there are as many goofy comments as, you know, for every 50 goofy comments, there's one actual ancestor of a particular person there. And, and, and you find this wonderful discovery about that photograph, but you have to look through boxes and boxes of, um, of garbage in order to, to, to discern that one wonderful comment. And that looks to me like a metaphor for, for, for part of this. Um, what is the, you know, who is the smart person in the room when there's a lot of smart people in the room or a lot of, peop a lot of people mixed, mixed up? One thing that disturbs me, I, you know, and I've been, I go to a lot of conferences and I listen to um, folks talk about what to do about Wikipedia. Um, and and I, I struggle, I, I think when I first heard David Weiberger speak about how, how wonderful it was about five years ago in, in, in Philadelphia, I, I was like, I was a little scared and I didn't know what to think because we weren't really sure what to make of it and it's gotten so much better. Um, I hate demonizing it. I think it's, it's fabulous for what it's fabulous for. If I really want to research Dancing with the Stars, that's really the first place in, uh, place I'll go. When I was doing recent, when I was taking my doing my doctoral work and I was studying Python programming, it was the first place I went. It was where the best links were. If I need scholarship on Hamlet, it's the last place I, I'll likely go. But it it and YouTube are now the go-to places for my my learners to get their jumping off point, and I I don't want to take that away from them. I want to stretch them and I want to have them have a huge searching toolkit, uh, but I don't, I don't want to discourage them from thinking about Wikipedia and what it is and when it's really good and when it really sucks. So, um, so it, it's, it's part of what you have to do with high school students. Uh, and occasionally um, you get some really smart people writing for it. We have to, we have to look at it for, for what it is. 
And I have to say that I think all our texts are really flawed. Um, my high school textbooks often stink. And what I keep asking kids to think about is what's missing from those textbooks and how do we use things like databases and search engines to fit in what's missing. Um, an English teacher told a very good friend of mine has a poster in her room that says there's no such thing as neutral text. And I really believe that. And uh, you know, and I want uh, you know, even when you look at a documentary, and, and kids think documentaries are representations of truth in in a in a black and white way. Um, I want them to know that every decision has to do with where the camera is and who's being interviewed and how many possible choices of interviews, who's speaking first, who's speaking last. I used to write for, for the newspaper, and although I tried to be honest and, and, and truthful and unbiased, I was absolutely aware that however I launched a story determined uh, to, to the degree what angle that story was going to take. Whoever I interviewed or chose not to interview um, or didn't have room for inter the interview was part of a problem that I had with truth and that my readers might have with truth. Um, the, I know I'm babbling on. I hope I'm not disturbing you by babbling too much. Another thing I'm finding very exciting is what is a primary source today? Um, it used to be that we would find documents um, that would be in archives as our primary sources. Now I'm using real-time search engines as primary sources. Um, Howard, you were talking um, in, in some of your pieces and we have people in our chat room who were, who were really um, exploiting this for, for good last spring, what was going on after the Iran election was true primary source. And, and, and we had to validate. We, had, we were teaching kids to triangulate those sources, to, to look to see how many people were reporting on that. But we couldn't wait for a peer-reviewed journal to appear to get that information, and kids shouldn't. That was, I think one of the most exciting times in terms of information. It, the same thing happened several years back during the London bombings where, um, where people were adding to Wikipedia and, and blogging much, much more quickly than anybody could create a news story. And the person on the ground who was living near the bombers, who had actual information and was able to fill that information out on Wikipedia was a primary source. And, um, and we needed to filter that. We needed to think about that. We needed to interview that, that text. But it was an exciting way to put information together and to determine truth. Um, I don't know, you know who is an expert is situational. It depends upon context. Um, I can't tell my kids that every PhD is, is, is the person you should look to because the person on the ground in Iraq has more accurate description of what's going on there than, than the, the congressman from Illinois. Um, so I, I don't know who the expert is, even if he's on the uh, a committee on armed forces. So um, I know that um, my students are finding different kinds of experts. I know that they're going to YouTube when they need to know how to tie a tie or how to dance, um, how to choreograph a dance. And that makes absolute sense to me as an information source. Um, very often, they will need a scholarly journal. I want them to know what a scholarly journal is and when they most need to do it. But again, it's situational. Sometimes YouTube is the best information source, and sometimes it's the Journal of the American Medical Association. And sometimes it's a doctor blogger who is um, making a discovery based on a trial. 
Um, um, so I've got questions for them to ask about blogs and wikis, and I'm asking them questions about how do, who do we follow on Twitter. And I'm thinking about my own personal learning network as an exciting information filter, something I can leverage and build and hone so it gives me what I need and when I need it. Um, and I think, last thing I want to say, because I know I'm babbling, um, and Howard, I'm, like, I idolize you, so it's like freaking at me out that I'm actually <laughs> in the same chat room with you. Um, so anyway, the other thing I'm thinking about is you know, that we need a number of different channels in order to get our information, and that if we, if we allow our learners to stop at Google or Wikipedia, then they're, they're ignoring so many wonderful new strategies for information finding, for, for places to question. Um, including original authentic research through polling, which is something that's now um, open to, the, to them. So I want them to understand how to design surveys and polls. And, and I want them to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to just stop right now because I, and I but, but my most important thing is I think that librarians have a really important role in crap detection or truth detection. Sorry. Oh, Joyce, it's fun to hear. I idolize both you and Howard, so uh, I'm just glad to be in, uh, here with both of you. Now, Francie, I get to start to idolize you. <laughs> We've never met before, but do you want to introduce yourself and, and uh, say a little bit about what you think is um, a part of this conversation? Um, sure, and Joyce, you are wonderful. No worries. Um, and we have also both been in school all day, right? So we're tired. <laughs> um, kind of ditto to everything that Joyce and Howard said. Um, I made myself a few little notes. In this environment, context is everything. Uh, one of the major answers I find myself giving all the time is instead of good and bad, is the answer is it depends. Uh, depends on what it's for, what, what you're going to do with it, what, what you're, where you're going with it. Um, I think in one particular area when I'm teaching um, evaluation of information these days that we see that we never used to see before in the web environment is this whole category of information that I would call advocacy. Uh, so if you go to the web, you find websites of all kinds of organizations, from the American Medical Association to the Ku Klux Klan, I mean everything. Uh, and you never would have found their equivalent on library shelves. Um, the website of the American Medical Association would have had no counterpart in a journal or, I mean, we used to have kind of the big three, the books, the, the periodicals, and the vertical file. <laughs> and the American Medical Association website was nowhere in there. So now whenever you are looking at information that comes from um, the perspective of advocacy, uh, no matter how authoritative that advocacy may be, uh, that's the way the kids have to look at the information. So when I think about crap detection, um, actually what I think about is we've got to move beyond crap detection and, and into much more of a stance of um, understanding the nuances and the levels and the, and the context and, um, I mean, in some ways, it should be easy, but I suppose it isn't. The crap detection part is the easy part. It's the what do you do with it and how do you do it and why do you do something with it that's, that, that is the really thorny problem. Um, so every time uh, with my students when we're looking at a website and trying to um, evaluate it, there are many levels that you are deconstructing it at. 
it's an odd sentence, but you're, you're not only looking at is this accurate, is this correct, is it truth, uh, whatever that may mean, but what is its purpose, why did the person put it there, what's its function in the world. Um, I think, though, that, that maybe uh, a new thing that I can contribute to this conversation is, is what I see as the elephant in the room. Um, that often people don't talk about, and that is um, we can't even begin to teach this stuff or kind of deal with this stuff in a meaningful way um, until we kind of deal with some of the access issues that are going on. And I don't mean by that, I don't mean the digital divide. I mean the policies that are in place in schools particularly and, um, and the draconian kinds of implementation of filtering software that make it impossible for us to, to really um, work with, with kids on uh, evaluating some of this kind of information. Um, and uh, you know, I'll make it really basic. You can go into any school library in the United States and look on their magazine shelves and see a sports magazine or a teen girl interest magazine or, you know, something that has nothing to do with the curriculum um, or a car magazine, say. But then you can't turn around, that, that student cannot turn around and go to the library's computers or the classroom computers and go to the counterpart website, you know, for car and driver. They can look at the magazine, but they can't go to the car and driver website because it is not quote unquote educational. It is not for school. Yet this is where their literacy lives. This is how they're learning and, and growing and, and, um, and writing and speaking and sharing. Um, and, but, and then the minute they get out of school, they, that's, that's what they're online looking at and engaging with. Um, and our, our, um, our, our filters, so that's a policy issue. Um, and I think it's very prevalent that, that students are not um, allowed or certainly not encouraged to go to anything on the web that is not directly related to an assignment. And I, I find this in some ways almost bizarre. Um, in, um, then there's the filter implementation. So I guess I'm just trying to be provocative here. I think that a lot of the filter implementations are sort of out of the box. Um, you know, they, they get installed just, you can do a lot with filtering software um, that to make it more responsive to your particular school situation. Um, but that is seldom done and it is seldom in the hands of the practicing teacher or a school librarian to unblock a site on the spot, you know, at will. Um, and yeah, I see somebody just wrote about, you know, can we just let it open first and then block as we see them rather than starting with everything kind of shut down. But I think it's very hard to have some of these conversations um, when uh, I mean, when I talk to other school librarians, I have a pretty special situation. We are, I'm part of the University of Illinois, and so the university is our, our internet service provider. Uh, we have no filters, and I can tell you the world has not come to an end. Um, but uh, many of the things I describe um, come to, um, people just saying, no, I can't do that, we can't see that, we can't share that. Um, so I think I should stop there um, and see where else we can take this.
So I'm, I'm, this is really fun, and I'm loving <laughs> the, the chat as well. Uh, last night, another one of my heroes came on for the, for the interview series, and it was John C. D. Brown. And we talked about uh, you know, some of the ways in which schools are really struggling to respond to what are almost critical needs right now in terms of reshaping education. Is the role of librarian understood in this new social media culture? Do you think that the librarian's role itself is not understood in the same way that we don't understand the need to, to open the internet? Can, can I talk about that for a second here? Um, Absolutely. And you lost, you lost I, your video, Howard. Oh. <laughs> I don't know which. But let's feel going. free to move on without it. Huh, my video, the camera light is off. Okay, maybe maybe I'm back. Yeah, there you are. Okay. Um, well, I, I just want to say you're absolutely right about the elephant in the room, and I and what you do about elephants in the room is you ignore them. That's um, um, what I'm doing about it. I I have to confess, my mother was a a public school teacher in Phoenix, Arizona, when I was a student there in the 1950s and 1960s. And I was one of those kids who, if it hadn't been for the library and the art room, my mom was the art teacher, I would have been in the penitentiary instead of the university. And that's um, my re my rebellion had a lot to do with being able to survive that system and think for myself. My per perhaps with with the virtues of age, I can understand what the teachers were trying to do, but the, but the way I saw it was um, they were trying to get me to color inside the lines, and I didn't want to color inside the lines. I want to think for myself, and in fact, I think that's what the elephant in the room is. There are a lot of people for a variety of reasons, foremost among them being that it, it's, it makes it a lot more convenient to be a parent who don't want their kids to be taught to question authority. They don't want their kids to be taught to think for themselves. They want to send them to school and know what wisdom they will receive. It's a, it's a package that's delivered to them that will, that's like putting the gasoline in the automobile and it will enable them to go out and get their job. Unfortunately, I think that way of thinking is to get your 19th or 20th century job. The reason I'm so concerned about the need for these literacies is not because they are a good thing and that I am a believer in thinking for yourself. I fear for anybody who thinks that they can learn a, a chunk of material akin to learning ancient Greek history or calculus and then go out into this world of uncertain information and be able to find their way, that there is a way of thinking behind what all about, both of what you were talking about was really a questioning attitude towards information. And then maybe there is a degree of, let's start at crap detection. Can you really tell whether the information that you found is, is accurate or just totally bogus? I think that that, to me, is the, is the, the, the very critical uncertainty, both about the individual being able to survive and thrive in this atmosphere, but also about the health of the commons. If we don't have a critical mass of people who are able to determine reality from, from 
a, a, a totally bogus slogan that was made up by somebody or just emerged from folk ignorance, then I'm, I fear for the value of, of, of the commons. So um, I think it's essential for the individuals, and I think it's also essential for the, the, the future of, when I say the commons, I mean the online commons. Um, and I, I see that this is in a collision with a lot of the way of thinking that has to do with you need to have a place to park your kids when you go to work. I understand that. And you don't want them coming back questioning everything that you say that they do. Um, and I am choosing to avoid that elephant in the room. And I hope to provide resources for those people who are braver than I am, who are directly confronting the institutions and trying to change those institutions, what I'm after is, so how do we do this? If, if miraculously, um, there was a, a, a textbook or, or video or website that was mandated for, for young people to, to use to learn these issues, what, how would we go about it? That's what I'm coming to you to ask. Is what, so some of, the, some of the things that I've seen on your sites have to do with showing them how they can be misled. But what are other ways of, I think, um, leading, you know, well, you know, one phrase that, that I can't take credit for that, that I, I got from um, somebody else, so I, the name will come to me, is that they have to think like a detective. I actually credited him in writing this. And I think that that's something that kids understand. So that, and certainly they see enough detective shows on television where they're, you're trying to find out who the murderer is. Not, um, I'm going to read this and get the knowledge. I need to make my way through this material and find the knowledge. So how do you do that? That's the question I'm, I'm asking. Oops, Joyce, I see your mouth moving, but I don't hear you. Um, Francis, do you remember when we met? <laughs> yeah, in, uh, in, in Library of Congress? We met in the Library of Congress, okay. and uh, for me that was the hugest um, learning opportunity I've ever had. We were presented with um, the Library of Congress collections and are and charged with having creating instruction around them that would force kids to be historical detectives and force them to be engaged and gathered together some tools while there that I, I don't think that, that have become a part of my personal arsenal of tools that I, I, I that I, I deal with every day. And and what it has to do challenges for um and and, and that's um, you know we, we're we're faced with this tension, the, the the testing that we're forced to do, and what we know, what many of us know works best to motivate learners and to really inspire creativity. Um, and and I think what good librarians do is weave those instructional strategies through um, the through the work of the teachers that we partner with. 
Um, Francis, do you agree with that? And we have some really mm -hmm. talented people in the room. I'd also be able to answer Howard's question. I, you have some of the finest librarians in the in the world in this in this chat yeah. room, whose names we really recognize. And I'm so right. I'm so eager to get oh, them to well, chat too. But Francis, what do you think? I mean, I can't imagine a single text or a single source. My strategy is always to blast them with lots of intersecting examples. Um, I mean, one of the interesting and incredible things about these Library of Congress collections is that because they're primary sources, they only tell, it's like, you know, that old joke with all the men, the, the blind people putting their hand on the elephant, um, and you're only seeing one little slice of a historical event. Or um, uh, you, you can you can find, well, one of my favorite collections is uh, is the song sheet collection. There's unbelievably racist stuff in there. And so, um, but, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't share it or show it to kids or talk to them about how to understand it. I think that as librarians, um, these days anyway, my most important um, mission or role is to teach evaluation of information. Um, much more so than, say, searching, although I teach searching as it is a tool on the way to evaluation. Um, I'd say two things that are important for librarians to do now. One is to engage in this, this sort of wrestling with the content, and the other is to give kids a safe place to be. And, and that's actually, Howard, what you were describing. Um, and that can be a physical place, it can be a, a, a virtual place, uh, but a place where, where uh, they feel supported and, and safe at many levels so that they can do that kind of exploration. Um, and there, there's many ways to do that. Um, and also, another thing I want to say to Howard before I forget, and this certainly is rambling space, is that it is fantastic to have somebody like you to, to speak to um, the people who aren't us, we, we have kind of a habit of speaking to the choir all the time, and sometimes it's because that's all we know. <laughs> um, oh, somebody raised their hand. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, um, it, so we need people like you who will go out into the world and say, hey, there are school librarians who feel that this is their mission, uh, and that this is what they can do, and that they um, can see across the curriculum and help in in many aspects. It's not. It, it is. It's what we do. Well, that's, okay. that's that's why I've come to you. So I'm I am interested <laughs> in in what these um, other folks in, in we haven't been hearing from have have to say. So let um, Steve. Why don't why don't we let you moderate this and let's see what others have to say about particularly. I'm very interested in, okay, if I could get people to listen to me, what would I say to them about, well, you know, how, how do you get your kids to, to act like a detective? I think that putting them in a situation where they can do a kind of safe, historical detective work around material, that describes a, a situation. I'd like to get really specific instructions that I could, I could spread around like that. Howard? Yes. Hi. Um, my name is Deborah. And one of the things I think is that precocious little children that ask why, 
you know, they're, they're sometimes, those, those are the children that somebody has to just kind of point to the computer and give them um, skills to find the answers. Because they, they get so excited when they get an answer that then they ask why again. And that's the whole detective thing. The other thing that um, I find is I've got teachers who are really, really good about children who ask questions and allow them to pursue the answer. They stop and they make it part of the process instead of saying, well, we'll get to that later. It has to be sort of a living organism, a classroom, not stagnant. And the other thing is I think um, you asked a question about change. Maybe that was Steve, about the needs for education and how do we do it. I don't know. Being instruments of change is very difficult. You have to do it student by student, teacher by teacher. It's not easy. But I've been right now getting involved with the homeschooling program and, and looking at what they're all about, even though I'm a public educator. And some of the things that they are doing are just so far out of the box, it just blows me away. So if you ever get a chance to take a peek into what they're doing with um, research and letting their children you know, have a problem and delve into it, it's amazing stuff. I could point you in the direction of Tammy Moore. And if you could sit in and on her classes or kind of be a student for a day with her and find out what some of the projects are, it's amazing. I'll turn my mic off. <laughs> do, do any of the three of you want to respond to that? Deborah, thank you. You get uh, bonus points for just being brave and turning your mic on. Way to go. Good work. I, 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 I want to hear from people. You know, you mentioned, you, Steve, you did mention um, Neil Postman at the beginning. And just, just briefly, when I started teaching, which was recently, um, five years ago, I just got the impression, and I understand because I'm seeing through this, this through my own filter of the kid who resisted um, coloring in, inside the lines, I'm seeing how much my students, who are college students, are institutionalized. To the, the, way, the way I saw that literally was in an open classroom where the chairs are stacked and the students come in and take their chairs and with no direction for me, put them in rows and columns. And they sit in about the same place every time. And if I did not intervene and say, let's put them in a circle and, and sit in a different place each time, that's what they would do. And I don't think that they're aware of it. I think they're institutionalized. So I thought, gee, these kids need to be programming. Uh, and that's what led me to pick up um, Teaching as a Subversive Activity by Postman and Weingarten off the bookshelf. And the first page of that was about Education is about getting them to ask good questions. So, I'm you know knowing when to shut up in the classroom is a, an, an art that I am beginning to learn. But getting them to get off of this, okay, my my parents have paid good money for me to sit here and take notes on, on what you're going to tell me, and into we're gonna we're going to inquire. That's I'd like to know how you do that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching it by saying, don't come into this class unless you are willing to inquire. I'm not going to tell you unless you ask the right question. And, and 
it's a little bit of a struggle. Once they get it, though, they get very excited uh, about it. They just have not been empowered in the classroom in a long, long time. So, Howard, are your students at Stanford? At Stanford and Berkeley. So, in, in, in many ways, they've been model students in, in a paradigm that rewarded a certain kind of behavior. Yes. So, so I, mean, I think what you're, you're expressing and experiencing is that even uh, that they've come up learning how to accomplish, and that has to be deconstructed in some ways because that's not the paradigm. And I guess the you know the sort of the the question I'm interested in in um, uh, hearing as you as you each respond is you know is this change possible in the system? Because if we look at homeschoolers as an example and we begin to see them as informing the discussion, how much more will outside forms of education begin to displace what we've seen as sort of traditional education? Well, you know, again, I, I come across the problem. Homeschooling requires a very serious commitment on the part of, of one or both parents. I, I just, school is an, a place to park your kids when you go to work. And unless there's an alternative to that, that's, you know, that's what we have to deal with. But school used to be the only place you could be exposed, or you'd go to the library. There were a couple of places where you could have access to knowledge. Now, there's, what is it, a billion people on the internet and four billion mobile phones. Access to knowledge is not the problem. Picking that knowledge out of the noise, finding it, and, and evaluating it, that's, that's the issue. And so I, I see a lot of this, I'd love to see this happening in the schools, but I, I see a lot of opportunities elsewhere. And you know, I, I think ideally, if I could, if I could say who I would write a book for, it would be I want to give something to that parent who's been they've been deluded by the moral panics. They are they're they're working hard to make a living. They don't understand what's going on with their kids' media. They want to tell their kids what to do so that they won't get in trouble and so that they will succeed. I'd like to give them something that that they would buy. That, that they would think that, okay, this makes sense, that they could give to their kids. So I'm going to make a plug for a book written by a woman I interviewed earlier this year called The New Global Scholar, sort of a fascinating study of a family that uh, pulled their kids out of traditional schools and, and went to live abroad and do a variety of different things. And uh, if anybody else here heard that interview, please feel free to chime in. Deborah, you're back. What would you like to say? Well, it's interesting. I, I I hear you, Howard. Come back on, and we'll we'll talk some more because I, I think conversation will lead you to that book. Um, if we could get some of these other people to just talk, no one in the room is going to bite anybody. Anyway, really quickly, I have one son who is gifted and talented, but he was socially not gifted and talented, and we. We thought about putting him in private schools, and there were schools in the, I live up by Phillips Exeter Academy. He did not want to go to school six days a week. And so basically what we decided to do was supplement. But I know that there's a lot of parents out there that don't have that money or time to supplement. And we basically made our house his laboratory. And he went to school, and that was a good thing because he did his socialization. But finally, when he got in high school, he finally came home one day and he said, my god, they're finally teaching to me, mom. <laughs> and he was happy because he was, he was in um, tracking. 
and they were going at a pace which kept him engaged. But all in all, I think all the pieces are important. The social part, so going to school was important. He needed to learn to get along with people. The sports was important. So Howard, if you want to write a book for parents, they need to be in their child's corner. I tell parents when they ask me, you know, your kid's a boxer and you need to be in the corner and you need to be wiping the wounds. And as far as like fighting with a kid over homework, let the school do that. You know, you just have to be there unconditionally, Thank in my you. opinion. Thank you. You, you know, there's, there, there's the, the substance of what you, of the message you're trying to deliver, and then, and then there's the, the package you put it in. And, and I think the package of, we all want what's best for our kids. And there's, it's an uncertain world out there, and you've got to be on their side. To me, is a, a more attractive way than saying the world has changed and people don't think the way you did when you were a kid and um, and you've got to let your kid do these weird technological things. Well, anything in moderation. You know, it was funny because we had we had this one child. We were older parents. We um, were obsessive compulsive. The computer was out in the open, so we could watch what he was doing all the time, and. I'm a tech, techie kind of person, and one day he came to me and he said, Mom, he said, I, I want to build a computer. And I said, all right, well, okay. You know, you go research all the parts you need, et cetera, et cetera. And I really kind of figured, you know, I'm because, because I want my own computer. Well, son of a gun, if that kid didn't do it, and, and it really surprised me. It did cost me some money because he did have my charge card. So you talk about harnessing detective. He went and he did it. Now the problem was he put it in his room, so then I lost all my parental controls. But by that time, he was in eighth grade. And you know, hopefully, we did give enough of that. But there were times when it bothered me that I, and I have a lot of savvy, so I could break into things that most parents can't. It's a fine balance, and as obsessed as I was, he still got in trouble, and I st I still got phone calls from agencies I didn't want to hear from. But he's 22 and a mechanical engineer, and he's doing okay. I'm going to have to remember that agencies I didn't want to hear from. That's a good quote. In the middle of the night, no less. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I think you have to understand that so many people are fearful because they've been fed a lot of crap. So, um, the uh, um, Sonia Livingston's new new book about um, uh, young people online. I can I'll get the title for you in a second. It's right behind me. Well, I'll interject a word I'll about. i for it when somebody else is talking. But you know, she she made the, the statistics. Uh, in the in UK, where they did the, the research of a million children online, um, six of them will be molested by someone they meet online, and 50,000 of them will be molested by a neighbor or a relative or somebody who's known to their family. Um, if you really care about that issue, don't. It's not about the online world. Um, the danger for your kid online is that they're not going to know uh, reality from from crap. And they're going to they're going to eat what's fed to them, and they're going to be herded by by others who are going to be manipulating them. I mean, so far we've been talking about being in a kind of innocent world that's full of a lot of noise. But I think you also have to think about being in a world where there are 
there are people who want to persuade you to, to, to believe something. And you're going to do that in many ways in sophisticated, cloaked, disguised manners. And the danger for your kid is not that some stranger is going to seduce them, but they're going to start believing things that just are not anywhere near accurate and, and true. And they're, they're not going to be able to get through life. And I think that that's, you know, I think there are some things to be afraid of if you're a parent. And I think you should be afraid of the, the right things. Right. I, I was going to interject with, um, I mean, I think one of the reasons schools can be such locked down places is because of that, that whole stranger danger fear. And we're, we're starting to learn a lot more now about what, what the facts are. I mean, what, how kids really can uh, get in trouble. And they tend to be the kids who are already risk, risk prone in their offline lives um, and uh, who, uh, have other issues. Um, the uh, so it's between the stranger danger problem and the um, management issue. I think that's one of the reasons. That those are two primary reasons that schools are so locked down when it comes to access to online information. So I was thinking about this today, Howard, uh, because I was thinking about the future of education interview series, and I was thinking, you know, what can I do to make a difference? Is part of this just that there's a large paradigm shift that needs to take place, and the more we can showcase alternatives to the way things have been done, alternatives where kids are highly engaged, or have been building open source software, or have been working in the communities, is part of this just making sure that we really show these as very real and tangible examples? I think so. I think that you know. I think the counter to the to the um, the moral panics and the bad information is good information, showing how people are, not, not just the dangers, but how, how people are thriving. Um, I know that every one of the people in this room have examples, and I just wish that I could have a little, little camera and see that, and we could show that to the world. You know, somehow or another, we need to do that, and I think we need to do it soon. Terry, did you want to ask a question? I've given you the microphone. Yes, I do. Hello, Howard. Terry Smith here. Hi, Terry. Um, I want to go back to the comment uh, the lady said earlier about having uh, parents being in the corners for their kids. Uh, I think that's an, an excellent analogy. Uh, and I also want to say that teachers, of which I'm a fourth grade teacher, we want to see parents in the corners for their kids also. And we want to see much more caring interaction. We want to see them worrying that these kids are being over-tested. Um, I'm seeing the fact that we're, we're seeing lots of parents, they seem to be buying into uh, the political control of education. I mean, maybe believing some of the, uh, what I think is malarkey, that we're putting the wor economic worries of the world on our children. We're, we're saying things like, if kids in Finland are scoring higher than our kids, oh, okay, there goes the economy. Uh, so it's all on our fourth graders and our fifth graders to score higher on standardized testing. And, uh, and adults get into conversations like this, that our kids do need to be scoring higher, and we need to be looking at those numbers. Uh, and to me, that mindset gets in the way of a previous point that came up about uh, problem-based learning or project-based learning, because uh, total data-driven education just sort of pushes back 
uh, any teacher who might want to take on a new project, who might want to bring some tools to the classroom, who might want to think in terms like of more play, like Stuart Brown or, or Mitch Resnick, uh, who might want to bring those things in the classroom. Those things are not welcome in the current environment. And uh, as a teacher, that's that's very frustrating to me. And and I'm as project based as I can be. I'm I'm constantly trying to get the standardized testing over to the sidelines so I can do something that the kids enjoy. Yeah, something the kids enjoy. I think, you know, there's there's the answer. I asked um about quickly about the standardized testing. I asked how homeschoolers get in school. Do they get assessments? Do they have grades when they go to try and get into the universities? And then I was told that they score so well on the SAT and the ACT, and they they don't even look at really their transcripts. And typically, these children will have gorgeous portfolios, so they get in and they get money. And some even get so much money that they get paid to go. But they don't really. Howard, one of the things that I see so much in public school is a, is wasting children's time. That's that to me is very sad. Yeah, it's well. I'm very glad they did not have the medications uh, then that they have now because I I got what the teacher was saying in the first five minutes. Why do I have to spend another 55 sitting in this confining desk and I'm a, a, an eight or a nine-year-old boy? It's just not natural. And so would you? I, I understand. It's crowd control. We'd like to go for um, IEPs for all, individual learning mm -hmm. plans for all. And if everyone had an individual learning plan, and if students were also in their own corner with their parents, they would kind of know or be setting goals, reaching goals, and then reassessing their goals. But libraries could be a place where that child that gets the information in five minutes could be on their own plan so they could get up quietly and they could walk out and go to the library. So they wouldn't have to waste time. I think that you know we have to get rid of bells and we have to be more fluid. But I don't really know how to get there. Steve, you're doing wonderful things to try to move move <laughs> the, the mountain. Um, I applaud I you. I think I I really think that libraries are places where some of this uh, revolutionary stuff can happen. I, I think that I, if I I see pictures of Francis Library all the time and, and a lot of the folks in the room, they really are, I, I, you know, I see my library as a laboratory. There's, uh, that's where all the, the stuff that kids are learning in terms of process really, uh, the rubber hits the road. Um, you know, there's all the research tells us what type of learning really sticks. It's the type of learning that um, when you watch a skateboarder outside, um, they're, they're going to fall and, and get hurt a million times. But what's powerful about what keeps them going is that they know they have authentic audience. They know they're learning skills that they can share with the world. Um, they, they know they're getting better from, for each fall. And they know they're creating something kind of artful. Um, we know that, um, it's, uh, that kind, the kind of learning that's authentic in the field, collaborative, people are cheering you on, part of a group, all that stuff is what the research tells us makes powerful and memorable learning, learning that sticks. And yet we know that and we do that in libraries and, and I, I know all my colleagues in the room are, are problem-based, pro, uh, project-based people. 
and we're balancing that with the the real existence of school and 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 some of us are believe that the next bus will come along and we are going to be ready to drive it as soon as it does because we've been preparing teachers and we've been preparing students to work with these new challenges, to have choice in the types of work that they're doing, to be artful. My, my own daughter, the reason she went to school was because she could make art at least for 45 minutes during the course of the day. And, and that was, she would take anything, suffer anything during the course of the other seven periods just so she could make art. We, we know that, that, that there is that, that thing that motivates learners and, and libraries know these kids. We support the individual kid. We'll feed them with food and we'll feed them with books and we'll feed them with the stuff that, w that we know they're going to love. And we allow them to grow in our own spaces. And we, we also do the same thing with teachers. I'm, this is the best time in the history of time to be a librarian, and it, it, it's, it's wonderful. And I know, I know the next bus is coming along, Howard. Um, and we're we're fighting the good fight while while we're waiting for this stuff. And what freaks me out is is the the metrics that we're using, and um, you know, principals, administrators who think by adding another AP class we can show the advanced learning in our in our system, where an AP class basically forces people to memorize stuff so quickly and that, that the better learning happens in, in the, the, um, the academic regular class because there is where we can fit the project-based, problem-based stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, that, that bus is coming. I'm always hopeful. Um, I, you know, I, I wish it's after 9, but there are so many librarians in the room. I, I, I Buffy and <laughs> Kathy and Peggy. Type and, your questions. Type your comments. So I'm, I'm going to do a logistical piece here. Do. Which is, I'm going to give everybody who committed an hour the opportunity to leave if you'd like without feeling any uh, uh, awkwardness. So we've reached our hour, and we really appreciate your being here. And this has been a terrific time, and there's maybe a lot more conversation to come. But if you budgeted an hour and you need to go, please feel free to go. And and Howard, you know, you and I talked about an hour, and if that's you, we certainly will respect that, and uh, you should feel free to to. Yeah, I, got, I have to go. I have to drive across town to an appointment. But we had also talked about doing some more sessions. So yes. I'd like to come back and, and talk with people. And I'm going to come back and take a look at what people have said after I've left. So thank you so much. There have been so many um, suggestions in, in the chat room here. I've collected so many links. I've got hours and hours and hours of, of reading to do. So thank, thank you all very much. And I, I'll see you back here. Howard, thank Steve, you for coming. Thank you so much for this forum, which is really a, a wonderful opportunity for so many of us. Absolutely. Delighted to have you. Really appreciate your contribution. These are great discussions, and that's what uh, hopefully they will continue to be so. So Howard, we'll, we'll excuse you at any moment, and we are clapping. Just, just exit yourself out of the system and, <laughs> and uh, give our appreciation. Okay, so uh, just as a quick Bye, little Howard. plug. Um, Conversations.net, futureofeducation.com, some great sessions coming up uh, tomorrow. Alan Weiss, who helped pioneer ThinkQuest on the business of changing lives, how uh, corporations can play an authentic role in education. Next week, Dennis Litke on Big Picture Schools and a session on learning games. Uh, later this month, SRI on, on communities and social networking. Lots of fun things coming up. You'll see in that list there. won't go through them all. Thanks to Illuminate. Thanks to Learn Central. Hope you'll visit my project, learncentral.org, um, and uh, that you'll come back to another session. 
Okay, so now we've officially given you the option to leave if you wanted, but we're going to keep going for those who want to. And Joyce and Francie, I'm going to let you dictate the amount of time. But the session is live, and if you want to raise your hand, Connie, I'm giving you the mic, so feel free to go ahead. Oh, oh. She, she, yeah, she says, unraise my hand. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So if you do have a question, please feel free to, to raise your hand. Or Connie, did you want to ask a question in the chat? Or anyone else? So I want to raise something I thought was very interesting. A company I love, Weebly, they're an online a web creation site, just announced today their new educator network. And they sent me the press material. And uh, one of the sites they show, they, they've created a system for students, for teachers to be able to give students the ability to create websites. So a student can create an online portfolio or a website project. And then at the end of the school year, the, the teacher can actually push that site out to the student independently, and they can continue on with it free through Weebly. That was brilliant. I just love this idea of creating your own web presence. And um, not even just the portfolio, but sort of passion-based um, showcasing of what you care about. And uh, one of the sites that they sent as, a, as an example was a site of Martin Luther King. And I thought, gosh, they've, they've probably missed that whole discussion about <laughs> Martin Luther King websites and how that was sort of that was sort of the literacy discussion for a long time. You know, websites come up when you Google Martin Luther King. Have we gotten past that particular example? And do, or do you think there's still a large group of educators who, who don't realize just how critical that is? I, you know, I don't know. And I, I, have, I work on the high school level, so um, I think my kids are tired of seeing very stark examples because I think they clearly see through sites. They see clearly um, the, the Holocaust denial sites. They, they, they know hate for what they can recognize it at this level. Um, I, I, I have trouble more with Joyce is breaking up a little for me. Responses of bias and um, and and whether some when something was written, why it was written, and that. I, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the only. It shouldn't be the one-trick pony way of teaching evaluation. And I think that as I look at LMNet a lot. I see so many requests for what was that? You know, can you send that list of hoax sites, or can you send that list of that's that's that awful site about that again, so I can do it? It's it just I, I think we need to to, to reach beyond that in, in our magnitude um, for teaching. I both the hoax sites or the pretend sites or the deliberately made up sites for evaluation are, can be pretty limited, and there there's so much else that you can use. Uh, I think advocacy sites are very good for that. Um, so, you know, sites that are actually well-meaning and wonderful, uh, like the one site I show is the American Bicyclists Association or something. <laughs> it, it's something like that. Just because they use the same tricks that anybody else uses when they're trying to persuade. Uh, they use red, white, and blue. Um, they, they, uh, they appeal to all your best. They use those, those um, sort of age-old propaganda techniques that, you know, propaganda in the best sense of the word meaning persuasion. And it, I think it's more effective actually to show um, a site that is 
what I would call challenging rather than the one that is like this sort of black and white evil um, versus good because mostly there is no such thing. So I say chuck the checklist. That is that is one, you know, when we have these black and white thumbs up, thumbs down type rubrics that we use for evaluating websites. And then also, um, for me, the Martin Luther King uh, org site, the, the usefulness of that lesson actually comes in when um, I show students who has linked to it, not understanding what they've linked to. And it's, it's because in five seconds they understand what it is. But then you see, show I them. I linked to that. I linked <laughs> to it too because I use it as an example occasionally. And what mm -hmm. I got was I got a lot of educators urging me not to link not to, to it. Right. All you have to do is it link to the Google search. It pushed yeah. it up in Google. And exactly. and they wanted it to push it down, which I you know, I thought was an interesting kind of thing for librarians yeah. to deny them the free speech. Yeah, it's it's right. you know, it a, a strange thing. One interesting thing that we've been using is the Superbook commercials as um, evaluations of messages and, and just sort of examining media messages. And that's, the kids really enjoy that, and, and they, they get to some deep analysis with that, although they're not all websites. Uh, there's a hand raised. Oh, I, I'm glad that you're now going on to like the advertisement. Um, can you hear me? I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you went Who's on speaking? to advertisements, Deborah. With the um, Super Bowl, I think that media literacy is an is an overarching goal that we need to have with all media. And I know that one of the things I'd I'd like to do is do a PTA information night on media literacy because it's just passing the word out, and especially being in an elementary school and having children question media. And I think that that's the important thing. You know, we all talk about the essential question and having children question. We really have to support that so that they can become that detective to find that truth. So I'm glad to hear you talk about the Super Bowl commercials. Yeah, that is great. And and Joyce, I, I also want to be clear that 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 there the the websites that I show that of people linking to the MartinLutherKing.org sites are the ones where. It's news stations that don't truly don't know what they're linking to, haven't looked at it. Um, but yeah, it's it's very easy to see. Most people who link to it are either other um, other hate sites or people like us who are teaching website evaluation. So I've just had this great brainstorm. <laughs> uh, uh, Peggy, you remember when we did this in Arizona, the same idea came up. But Peggy says, great idea to have a media literacy night for parents. Mm -hmm. Education is so important. And have the students do that teaching, meaning prepare the students to teach their parents about media literacy so they're in the role of learning in order to teach. I think that's just brilliant. Right. Had, to, had to get that in again. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. I make my, my students um, share their one of their website evaluation exercises with with their parents. They're supposed to show them how to um, find all the hidden nuances on the pages, and then the parents have to sign. But it would it might I, I never know how that translation actually happens. So it would be really fun to do it in per in person with with the parents. Is anybody doing that? I would love to have a guest on who's actually organizing the students to teach the parents about media literacy. 
Connie, are you doing that with your students? It's the kind of thing I think you would do. SMAK, who are you so I can contact you? I dropped my pen there. Did I miss anything? <laughs> Jen, yes, of course, that's perfect. I'm, I'm sure that um, they've got something like that going on. Now, Steve, how about short of that? Short of that, um, just a couple of quick things that we do, um, kind of systemically. Um, we have kids annotate their sources. It leads to fewer sources. And we have criteria for, criteria for annotations. And the annotations have to do with the credibility of the author. They're very short. They're not huge things. But it, takes, it, it forces the concentration on, on quality in context. Um, and it, it, it's no more work for the teacher. It is a little more work for the student. But we tend to make shorter assignments and more annotations. And then every single time a kid does current events, we don't ask just those Ws. We ask, um, why, did, why, why did you choose this article? What is the nut sentence, the nut quote, if you could find one? Can you detect author bias? Why does that matter? Why is it personally relevant, and so what? Um, and so it's not just current events crap. It's meaningful current events. <laughs> and we try to make it you know, as meaningful as current events can be. And, and, we, and it forces kids to choose something that matters either to them or they feel that matters in the world. So I mean, there's just little things that you can put in place, even though you can't change an entire system and make a school that's not necessarily fully project-based, problem-based into that. But you can you can do little things to to get kids thinking more critically. Okay, so you know, I, go sorry. ahead. No, no, please go ahead. I want, to, I want to make sure that everybody who wants to ask a question, I, we've heard a lot from Deborah, and I am grateful for her, but I just want to make sure that everybody who, who wants to ask a question has had an opportunity, because many of us are actually leaving for conference very uh, tomorrow, actually. So I'm going to see a lot of these people there. But in this, in this kind of environment, um, is there anybody else who, who wants to contribute to this conversation? Please. Joyce, I'm sure hoping that you will make this a regular event for yourself as well. I'm you know what? Let me let, let's 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 force that on on this on this room and whoever's left. Um, Steve has offered us the space to have perhaps monthly meetings for librarians with with various guests, and he would help us. Um, I really don't want to. I, I, I'm doing a little bit too much right now, so I don't want to do this alone. Um, but if I can get a regular group of people helping, I think this would be wonderful. We could have conversations with people who don't look like us so much uh, and, and actually learn from, learn from them and have them learn from us. Um, we, we could have conversations about MLA 7th edition if you prefer. Um, but whatever it is, it, it could be a way to get together and, you know, and, and really share, share our knowledge. Uh, so, Please email me, or, or um, I don't know if you want to email Steve. You probably don't want to email Steve because he probably has a lot of other things to do. Um, but you know how to reach me, and let me know if you want to help, uh, kind of chair this. So I love the idea. Raise your hands if I you're. <laughs> I'm going to raise my hand. 
Hey, I love the idea, and I love the idea of making it conversational, like tonight, so there's not a lot of preparation necessarily, but if you had a guest, someone could come and prepare, and it wouldn't have to be you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep encouraging you to do it, because I think um, this is a conversation that really should be happening. Uh, the role of librarians and, and what's taking place. So um, I'm excited about it and hope you get some response and you'll consider it. Francie, delightful to have you tonight. Thanks, Steve. We, we welcome you anytime. Okay. I'm thrilled that, that, uh, <laughs> that, that uh, Howard has come back and, and seems to want to come back more often. I love this technology. I love this kind of space and, and what's cap you know, what we're capable of doing here. So if you have any ideas, please let me know because this is uh, the joyful part of my day's work. You are so, so generous, Steve. Thank oh, you. You're my hero. <laughs> you are, you We're are all each other's heroes. Yeah, I, lo I love yeah. it. Anyway, so uh, we'll, we'll pat each other on the back uh, Thank uh, you, uh, again and again. You're most welcome. Thank you for coming tonight, everybody. Sure fun to have you here. Uh, we'll do this again. Please come to conversations.net and futureofeducation.com and learncentral.org, and we'll keep the conversations going. And okay. uh, ha have a great night. Okay, I'm names. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Joyce, I'll always help you. Thank you, Francis. <laughs> okay, see you soon, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Good night. Have a good conference. Thanks.